happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode number 127 on fabulous March 6, 2019. My niece, Caitlin's uh 15th birthday today, and I am Jason Neifer joining you from Missoula, Montana, where I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school that is housed on the lovely University of Montana campus. And joining me, as always, Dr. Russ Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you today? I am well. Glad to be here and excited that you are back from your Exploits in the Pacific Northwest, where I understand you have won the award of Ed, Ed Tech Yoda of the Century, Guru of All, Was that or the Eric uh, Jensen or the Eric Jensen Award. Is it? Yes, I, I did win along with Mike Agostinelli, one of my partners in crime at the Montana Digital Academy, did win a, uh, a very humbling award from NCCE for for service to the organization and Ed Tech in the Pacific Northwest. So that was a lovely part of the NCCE conference last week. Um, I also had the uh, uh, opportunity to. Um, uh, here are two keynote speakers that were both actually really amazing. Jason Latimer is a, uh, a magician and scientist that uh, talks a lot about wonder and building wonder for students and his um, speech and performance. Uh, and, the, the, and I had the opportunity to run a Q&A with him after his keynote last week was really great. And I hadn't really heard of him until he popped up on our radar uh, as part of our searching for keynotes. But Gary Brooks from um, uh, uh uh, it's an elementary principal um, in the, and I, of course, am forgetting the, the state he is from Tennessee, I think he's at. And he's got a very popular YouTube channel where he talks about some of the uh, interesting things about being an elementary school principal. And he gave a really extraordinary address um, as part of that conference. So wonderful conference as always. I'm glad to have the opportunity to um, work with that crew and uh, connect with teachers from around the United States and world for that matter. There's always international guests to that particular conference. And the one session that uh, I gave a number of, of talks last week, the one I think I'm most proud of, and I got a lot of great responses on, it's called the six apps every teacher needs to have on their phone. And it was both a suggestion about those apps, but also kind of a reformulation of maybe your relationship with your phone. And I mentioned the topic we talk about here a lot, the technology correction, um, and and did mention um, that concept. And it, it, it turned out really well, and I had a lot of nice audience response. So um, great part of that, uh, uh, great to be part of that conference every year. Fantastic. Um, I do want to let people know YouTube has changed their API algorithm, their relationship with Twitter. And so we no longer are able to have our shows automatically tweeted out. I just went ahead and tweeted the link, but had to do that manually. I think that's maybe part of efforts to address bots and make the world or make the web a more personal experience. But anyway, um, if you need to uh, and, and want to check out our show as we start, usually at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, et cetera, et cetera, um, you can click the uh, YouTube channel link that we've got on edtechsr.com, and then you will see at the top of our, of our actual channel the link to the live show. But anyway, we will continue to tweet that out, just maybe a few minutes 
delayed. So, Jason, what are we going to talk about tonight? Well, there's a lot of interesting things going on, as I'm sure no one is surprised, but I do, I haven't seen actually a lot of information out South by Southwest. That's the conference going on in fabulous Austin, Texas. Uh, It's a series of conferences, actually, but there is a South by Southwest EDU, which is a conference I did have the opportunity to speak uh, at and present a couple years back, but I haven't seen a lot of ed tech news out of that conference, and I usually do, which is uh, one of the reasons why um, I was surprised to see this particular one pop up. But Google announced at South by Southwest that um, uh, they are uh, opening up a a hub. I I guess I don't really know how to describe it. They call it a Chromebook hub. Um, But the idea is, is they are going to release some kind of page resource page that is going to talk about productive ways to do things on your Chromebook. And that's interesting to me because last week I had the opportunity to present with uh, Simon Miller, who is the uh, tech director of our tech director in Kellogg, Idaho, um, in uh, what he calls fabulous upstate Idaho. And uh, uh, Simon's awesome and does really great things uh, as, as a tech director and as, as a Chrome advocate, but um, it's interesting to see Google go in this direction. It's something that I've presented on several times and worked with um, both conference presentations and, and a handful of school districts on this issue, but I'm glad to see that Google's taking a proactive approach to create like a showcase of things that work well in the Google apps, uh, or I'm sorry, the um, the Chromebook architecture. As I've mentioned here in the past, I'm totally all in on Chromebooks now. Uh, my daily carry is a Chromebook. Uh, my actually Pixel book is down right now. I'm not exactly sure what the situation is, so I'm going to send it in for um, for repair. But I happen to have a uh, five-year-old uh, Lenovo X1 Ultrabook that I've turned into a, a Chrome OS-like experience with Neverware, something we've talked about in the past on here, and that's what I'm going to be carrying. I have a, a, some conference travel next next week uh, for a, a meeting with uh, the NROC project in California. And I'm excited to carry that with me. I just, I, I can't speak enough about how great the uh, Chrome OS architecture has been. So uh, you have to sign up for it to be notified about it. The reason why I mentioned that is because the form is kind of bizarre. It, uh, it asks for your name and school district and your role in that school district. And it says, um, do you, you know, do you give us permission to email you? And you're like, sure. And it says, do you also understand that we're not responsible if we forget to email you or don't email you? And it's like, sure, like bizarre, because someone had to threaten to sue or sue to get that particular piece on there. But I'd suggest if you are a a, a Chrome advocate, as I am, um, sign up for that notification of that that being released. Although I uh, do not doubt that that will be something that will appear in the media. So, Wes, out of curiosity, are you interested at all in, um, you know, more Chrome information from our friends at Google? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, anyone in educational technology today who is not actively uh, utilizing the Chrome platform and exploring the ways in which that can streamline and and further secure the computing experience for users, uh, even contemplating that for faculty, um, I think is not doing uh, due diligence because we absolutely need operating systems to really be reinvented for right. the incredibly hostile security environment that we live in right now in 2019. We also need tools that really 
allow us to powerfully leverage the cloud, which we've, you know, seen for, you know, a decade plus or whatever. I mean, this, this movement to the cloud for, for IT. And so, um, nothing does that as well today in the realm of educational technology as the Chrome platform. Microsoft is scrambling to catch up. Um, I saw a really impressive demo, um, actually, it was in Boston a couple of weeks ago uh, from a teacher that is all Microsoft, uh, Microsoft Surface. They use OneNote and Teams, and, and it was very impressive. I, I was impressed to see what the kind of collaboration they're doing. But I don't think that the management um, – I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not – we're actually tomorrow going to be learning – more about the uh, Microsoft mobile device management platform, which is called Intune. And again, Microsoft is really working with, you know, Office 365 and all of their offerings for education to really, you know, try and, and leverage the cloud and, and make things simpler and more powerful. But I absolutely am interested in all things Chrome. And I think that, again, it's impar- it's incumbent upon all of us as technology leaders if we're in a position uh, to take a look at devices and to take a look at, uh, you know, of course, hopefully, in, as well as device function and security, which is which is really key, um, what the affordances of, of Chrome are. So that's a right. fantastic resource. And I just added that to my buffer queue to go out and, and tweet. And by the way, if you want to access all of our links, you can find those at edtechsr.com slash links. And we have a veritable cornucopia of links, as we often do tonight, which I know we will probably not get through half of, but you can check out all of those on that page. Um, I want to mention one other quick article, Wes, and then I'll, I'll, we can toss it back to you. But uh, there is an interesting piece of Microsoft news this week. This came out near the end of last week, and I've read a couple of different accounts of it. And they've been largely the same. But Microsoft is apparently working on something referred to as Windows Lite for dual screen and Chromebook-like devices. And the reason why this is interesting to me is because I was a customer is probably a strong word, but when Windows 10S was initially released, and I honestly, I, I could tell you what Windows 10S was. It was a, a, or actually is, it's an operating system that's available that has an easy setup, not unlike the Chromebook experience if you're setting up a lot of machines in a, a school or district, but it also substantially uh, locked down the operating system, and you could install traditional Windows applications. The only applications available were from the Windows Store. And so there's about 600,000 applications in the Windows Store. It's generally acknowledged to be well behind its App Store counterparts. So that would include the Microsoft, or that, I'm sorry, that would include the, the App Store uh, from iOS, uh, it, the Mac App Store, both and, and the mobile iOS App Store, and also the Google Play Store, which works on modern Chromebooks. Um, and it just never really took off. And one of the reasons why that's the case, and in fact, I carried around a Windows 10S laptop for two weeks, a, a personal one I installed Windows 10S on, and my biggest complaint um, was that it just didn't feel that crisp, right? Like it, it, it didn't seem to have any speed advantages. Well, Microsoft is developing something that's internally called Windows Lite, and it is a Windows 10S-like system the difference being that uh, it's built from the ground up. So it's not just turning off the opportunity uh, to install traditional applications. It's building the operating system from the start to not need them. And that's a little more interesting to me because uh, it would still be a likely uh, a locked down to Windows uh, Windows Edge. There, I'm sorry, Microsoft Edge, the browser that comes on Windows 10, and that's it's it's much better than Internet Explorer, but I think not 
quite as competitive as Firefox or Chrome, but I do think Microsoft is making an interesting inroad in the space. And, you know, I, I just, I, I saw it a couple days ago, the uh, Chrome OS environment called essentially a productivity driven, right? Because you can really just do what you need to do and, and move on. It's simplistic in that way. And I would be interested to use a device if Microsoft comes up with a, a light operating system that runs lightning fast on relatively modest hardware. And I will say, yes, I'm very interested in this as well. That That's back to the point of, you know, due diligence and how we need to, you know, be exploring these alternate platforms and not just having tunnel vision and, and, you know, succumbing to baby duck syndrome. I've always used this. I'm all, you know, I, this is the only thing I can use. Um, we are going to be purchasing, uh, for the first time, Microsoft laptops instead of some Dell laptops to put in the hands of a few of our teachers. We actually don't have that many Windows wielding uh, teachers at our school. Most uh, our teachers can can actually make a choice, and most of them do, you know, stick with the Mac platform today. But um, I, you know, super interesting and super important. You know, as, as we may touch on with some of our security articles tonight, we've talked about things like the Mirai botnet and just, you know, these, these security vulnerabilities that we have, um, the traditional operating systems are wide open to that. So I think it's great to see Microsoft moving in this direction. And again, I think Google has set the bar in terms of, of management of cloud devices and leveraging the power of the cloud and uh, more power to them. If Microsoft can come up with something equal or better than what Google's done, that'll be fantastic for schools. Okay, great. Thanks, Wes. Where to next? Well, we've got a lot of articles tonight under the heading of social networking, and I'd like to uh, talk about a few that are that are kind of joined together. And I think that this probably came from the This Week in Tech podcast. I I love listening to that. I, I'm not listening to it every week, but I've been listening to that more frequently than um, most of, of my other podcasts. And so there's a, a few different articles. The first one is from CNN, actually on September 26, 2019. It's called How to Make Technology a Force for Good. And... Um, this is an article about a couple guys who are not out to, um, you know, make us you know, encourage uh, screen time abstinence um, or just completely uh, demonize and destroy Silicon Valley. But they are out to do what I've, I've talked about. And we've talked about several times on the show, referencing, I think, Noah Harari and Tristan Harris, um, their work with the Ethical Center for Computing. Um, Harari's got the book, uh, 20, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And they're saying that we've got some fundamental issues right now happening with social media and the way that targeted advertising works and targeted uh, propaganda. And so uh, one of the little paragraphs that I will read from this, I think I had um, said this. Uh, we need a new rule for the market that breaks the vicious alignment between disinformation and profit maximization and places power back in the hands of the consumer, a new digital social contract. But what would such new rules look like? In a new report published by the Harvard Kennedy School's Sorensen Center in New America, we highlight three areas of public interest that concern national policymakers, what they must tackle, et cetera, et cetera, transparency, privacy, and competition. And so, you know, back to what Jason mentioned in terms of the technology correction, um, we are, I definitely think, in an era where we're going to see some regulation of um, of the web. We're, I mean, we're already seeing it with GDPR uh, coming out of Europe, but we're going to see some most likely coming from the United States. Um, what I think I can say with confidence that Jason and I hope is that these regulations don't break the Internet, right, and that we don't, you know, end up with some fractured 
uh, mutant version that, you know, doesn't allow us, for instance, to put a web page up and, and have a lot, you know, a lot of people all over the world be able to see it um, because of, uh, of regulations and rules. But that article uh, references, uh, actually, there's two reports, and I only put one of them in here because there's a digital deceit number two, but the New America Foundation on January 23rd, 2018, so this is a little over a year ago, published Digital Deceit, the Technologies Behind Precision Propaganda on the Internet, and then there's a fantastic article that's more recent. It's from February 22nd, 2019. Uh, it's from Matthew Ingram, who's one of my favorite journalists to follow. He writes now for Columbia Journalism Review. He worked for GigaOM, so he's part of actually a Twitter list I still maintain and read on Flipboard quite a bit uh, for those uh, those uh, journalists that were originally with GigaOM. Uh, but his article is called Fake News is Part of a Bigger Problem, Automated Propaganda. And so as we've talked about, you know, with uh, – Cambridge Analytica and the, the Russian hacking and, and things that are now pretty much, I think, mainstream knowledge. Uh, these were not things that Russia did with special tools that the GRU, you know, developed in Moscow or that, you know, the, the, the Chinese military developed or whatever. I mean, this is mainstream use of Facebook tools to target individuals and basically to hack brains and, and hack an election. And so, um, I really think that this is a very important realm of media literacy that we need to talk about. We need to be more aware of the ways in which we're influenced, not just to purchase products, but also to feel different ways, right? That was some of the controversy we heard a couple of weeks ago from Facebook was they were targeting, you know, teens and youth and not notifying folks. Jason and I have both published, uh, a district, you know, written dissertations and we had to go through a human subjects review and universities are very, very methodical and, and, uh, you know, intentional and, and, and very, you know, like you can't negotiate with this. You, if you're going to do a, a study, you've got to go through a process, a review process and approval process. And so, you know, Facebook has been doing all kinds of things, including, you know, playing with people's emotions and then seeing the kinds of things that, that they could do, uh, manipulating behavior. And so anyway, I just think all of that is, is pretty big and I'm glad to see. You know, I think some very thoughtful uh, policy, um, you know, analysts and consultants and both the guys in that CNN article that are referenced here worked under the Obama administration and, and you know, it had some different roles uh, in terms of looking at ways that, you know, Silicon Valley technologies and, and whatever could, you know, be leveraged uh, for the government. So um, how has your thinking changed on the tech correction, Jason? And do you have looking into your crystal ball uh, right now? What, what, what do you see on our near term horizon when it comes to regulation and the ways that we're going to respond to these issues now? Part, part of my concern here is that I, I just don't understand how Facebook corrects the uh, corrects the ship. Right. Like, I don't know what happens to make it uh, not an issue anymore. And, and to be specific to Facebook for a moment, there is plenty of evidence that uh, groups were attempting to influence the 2018 midterm elections. And there's been numerous articles to suggest that the 2020 presidential election is already getting attention on Facebook. And as it turns out, I don't know what Facebook does to prevent this long-term without, uh, um, with, without dramatically changing the platform to something that it's currently not. A pivot is what Silicon Valley might call that. And there's a couple other articles that, that kind of talk to that a little more specifically. Uh, first, uh, the Verge reports today that uh, US, uh, the U.S. user base 
for Facebook declined by 15 million since 2017. And um, that uh, it's a different way of looking at this. It's uh, survey data compiled by Edison Research. So it wouldn't be numbers released by Facebook, but rather uh, numbers based on people reporting uh, their use of these platforms. It does note that Instagram is exploding dramatically, but I, I, I guess I know more people in my life that have started to push away Facebook than I know those that are staying steady or embracing the platform. And this notion of, um, uh, you know, what what do we do about this? Like, I'm not sure if if that even if Facebook takes dramatic action, that people are going to trust the platform, right? So my thought is, is that, that, uh, and it's, it's, it's unfortunately too easy to talk about this in context of Facebook and not broadly technology, because I think that a lot of our fears and a lot of our criticisms and maybe a lot of the things we're creeped out about are really Facebook based. Now, there was a late breaking story, uh, this afternoon where Mark Zuckerberg has announced that, and this, this one blows my mind. Um, that Facebook, part of that pivot is going to be that they're going to try to move towards um, uh, the the headline from The Verge is uh, they're going to emphasize encrypted inf- uh, ephemeral messages. And so, in other words, they're going to work on point-to-point messaging that is, you know, the, the notion of ephemeral would be kind of like the Snapchat model or the, the Facebook or uh, Instagram stories model where information is fleeting and does not, it doesn't exist after a certain amount of time or 24 hours, which clearly is a model that's popular, especially amongst uh, younger Americans. But I, I mean, I guess I don't need a private messaging app, right? Like that's the part of this is that I don't know how you correct this platform without completely demolishing it. And I just, I don't, and I, I, I don't hate Facebook. That's the thing, right? I get that it's dangerous, but I don't hate it. I like being connected to people and the positive things, right? Like I, I like seeing pictures of, of family and friends. I like sharing my, my life celebrations, right? I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. But I, I, if I wanted to send private ephemeral messaging to someone, there's already plenty of platforms for that. Like I don't like I get why that answers criticism of Facebook, but then it's not Facebook anymore. It's something else. So I it's it's a real big balancing act. And I just honestly don't know um, uh, where it goes from here and and, and how we, we fix the problem without taking away maybe the, some of the beautiful things that exist for social media. Yeah, well, uh, we mentioned on the podcast a while back, I'll, I'll just say as a, as an aside, on January 15th, I wrote a, a blog post called Why You Should Not Quit Facebook or Twitter. And, and I was writing some of those things that you mentioned about how, how beneficial it is, you know, for me on Facebook to connect with family, to be able to, to be in touch with lots and lots of friends and, and others that, you know, support us. And there's just, there's no way we would be doing that absent the platform, you know, Twitter in terms of professional learning and, and, all of that is just, you know, is phenomenal. But we mentioned, well, and I, I joined uh, uh, Reddit here in the last couple of weeks, and I, I made the mistake of posting that article in the, the subreddit privacy, uh, which really nobody was interested in hearing that particular thing. So my, whatever, your little, <laughs> you know, your, your score. score. Yeah, yeah, whatever your score. I was in the hole for a while. I think I'm starting to, to dig out of that a little bit. 
Um, well, we mentioned this book, and I, I haven't read it yet, but it's Shoshana Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. Uh, this is really the root of it, right, that the uh, economic model of Facebook, as well as to a degree, you know, Google and all of the companies that are monetizing our data um, really at the expense of, of our privacy, you know, have created this environment where, you know, this, this targeted advertising, uh, targeted capitalism or not the capitalism, um, you know, targeted propaganda, um, can happen. And it, it really does. What we're doing is we're questioning fundamental business models. Now they have, have really moved into this, right? Facebook didn't originally own, um, these companies that I don't even know the name of and can't say, but they're the ones that have bought up all this data and own this, this huge, opaque cloud of information about each one of us, um, which Facebook is now able to use to connect the dots, to use things like our phone number, our cell phone number, our email address. Um, and increasingly in China is definitely moving further than faster, we think, than the United States on this, you know, facial recognition and biometrics um, to be able to do all kinds of things. I don't know if you use Yelp that much, Jason, or if you have that location on, but it it's not creepy. I kind of it's okay, but you know this fresh Friday night we were at a, a restaurant in uh, you know I guess Western Oklahoma City, and something just popped up because you know that was the neighborhood that I was in, and I don't remember if it was a CVS ad or or something. But you know anyway, this idea that you know we're gonna as consumers respond to things that are happening with geolocation and then with you know the the dots that have been been, been connected. Uh, and so, yeah, I think, I mean, this is a pretty big question. Is all of this just inevitable or, you know, do we have the capacity as autonomous independent beings to, to change the trajectory? And, uh, Zuboff, as well as the two authors in that CNN, you know, piece and the, the authors of Digital Deceit, um, they really think that we can. They think that there's ways to, to carve out space for social media and for advertising, but to really empower consumers for us to have much more uh, knowledge about the kinds of data that's being harvested ab about us and that that's collected uh, much in the way that today for a credit rating or something, we can see what the credit agencies have uh, about us and, and we can then contest information. Um, you know, we, we don't have that kind of, of power in the United States today to be able to see that kind of information, but then really uh, regulating the kinds of things that these companies can do because, you know, mentioning the elections that are going to be coming up, uh, we're, we're as wide open today, I think, as we, as we were and ever have been, you know, even more so because the tools are more powerful. The databases are bigger, uh, the, the power of the targeting, um, you know, algorithms, um, the power of artificial intelligence. I definitely want to get to that, you know, AI bot article that you dropped in there about, you know, how they're not uh, releasing that one. Or shoot, let's just do it now. Uh, yeah. Open AI won't release AI text generator, branding it as too dangerous. Um, and I, I saw this on a couple different places, but, but basically, uh, open AI, which is this initiative to try and share artificial intelligence findings, research algorithms has recognized that what they have created and in some of the creative writing, like they, they had something right, like Tolkien, right? Like Lord of the Rings and, and some other things. They, they wrote a fictitious article about, you know, unicorns being identified in the Andes and it quoted a scientist and, you know, think about the, the very traditional 
sort of information literacy, media literacy activities like the Northwest Pacific tree octopus or, you know, some of those other things that I think Doug, Doug Johnson, Blue Skunk blog and, you know, others back at the dawn of the Web 2.0 age in the mid 2000s were talking about, um, you know, Ian Jukes, Al November, um, <laughs> the ability for bots to be able to write this kind of stuff and having that released to just go wild is crazy because, uh, you know, how are we going to distinguish between fact and fiction? And so anyway, that's why I think all this media literacy stuff is just so important. And we have passed the point, I'll say this, where we need to be having required courses in schools to address media literacy and to help students grapple with all this. Because, you know, I was asking my daughter, um, this week by our youngest who's 15, you know, if she know what she knows about Fox news and about, you know, political bias. And, you know, there, I don't have this article in here because we're not going to go off of on a major tangent on politics. I don't think, but you know, the ways in which um, our current executive has been, has been bolstered and it, and it plays both ways. I mean, I think CNN totally lives off this, you know, just the whole media cycle and, and the ways in which, you know, bias plays into all that. We just really need students more than ever uh, to have, as, as uh, Neil Postman would say, good crap detectors and to be able to discern who to believe and, and who to not believe. So, Jason, have you got that figured out? Did NCCE give you the golden key to, you know, solving the fake news issue and giving everyone the kind of discernment powers that are necessary in 2019? Um, the answer is is no, sadly, but there were more sessions related to things like media literacy and spotting fake news, and NCC hosts a lot of teacher librarians from the Pacific Northwest. They actually have a summit on day one of the conference, and so there's a lot of, of great librarian uh, influence in the conference. And one of the things that I would say is that it feels like we're tackling this issue as, as, a, as an educational uh, field, right? Like we're taking some time now to think about how this plays forward, but I mean, I, I do think this goes back to the notion that um, we, I, I think we were overemphasizing the Internet's power to provide us accurate information, right? Like, I think that's the part that we have to be, like, really challenging of right now, that uh, uh, the key, one of the keynote speakers at last week's conference, Jason Latimer, talked about that, you know, one of the problems with internet as a source is that, you know, search engine results are based on what other people clicked on, right? Like there's a, almost a, a group think that happens from that because the things that float near the top is because there's an algorithm that, that tries to, you know, uh, guess which is the best based on what people are clicking on. And popular opinions don't always mean correct opinions, right? But I think we we have raised a generation of ra lazy researchers and um, uh, people that aren't willing to click past page one of the search results. And more importantly, I think when we have you know pushed out this notion that we need to be be learning at least base content in a classroom, saying that students can just go look up content on their own, I think we've skipped some steps there before. I think we could truly consider the internet. Um, a, a, a independently a teaching tool without context or without well thought out application inside of, of a typical K-12 classroom. So I think we're heading in the right direction, but 
yeah, like I, it, uh, it, it's all, it's all quite, I, I think, scary to be honest. And uh, you mentioned it over and over again, Wes, and it feels like it's kind of a dead horse we keep hitting, but it's true. It's media literacy, right? And if we're not spending more time and resources really across the curriculum, I think this applies as much to science classrooms as it does to social studies, English, and math classrooms. But this notion that we need to be empowering students to ask a lot of pretty pushy questions about the data that's pushed towards them. I don't know how we survive without it. Here's a couple uh, fast articles, some on a more positive note. Uh, this is about SpaceX. So this is from Ars Technica on March 1st. SpaceX launches new uh, Crew Dragon on its way to the space station. And if you're not familiar, right, SpaceX has been launching, um, you know, not only uh, a series of rockets, but they've developed that capability to have recyclable rockets that, you know, amazingly take off and then land again. Um, and so Dragon is the uh, crew module that will allow human beings to uh, not only go up to the International Space Station, but also, you know, potentially to the moon and, and other places. And so this launch that just happened on the 1st of March uh, was successful. They only had a, you know, mannequin in there. There weren't, you know, live people, um, but it went really well. And this is really big because the United States has, has not had a launch capability to go to the International Space Station for quite a while since we retired the shuttle in, in whatever year that was. We've relied upon uh, the Russians to do that. Um, so that was pretty cool. And then another um, uh, just set of articles real quick to, to mention that were kind of interesting. This is from a guy named Jeff Wise on Medium, right? So here's, this is interesting. It's not coming from NBC or Reuters. It's coming from Jeff Wise's Medium, uh, which any of us can set up. Uh, but he has an article called The Ethically Questionable Math Game Taking Over U.S. Schools. And so it's talking about um, this edutainment model and the um, – the pro, the game, video game called Prodigy, which he says is a massively multiplayer online game, in which players roam a virtual landscape, engaging one another in magical combat. Think World of Warcraft crossbred with the flat, cartoony style of Neopets. I had not ever heard of this before. Um, Common Sense Media, you know, endorses it and says it's great because it's entertaining and it's valuable math lessons. And then, you know, it, this article quotes a bunch of people who are who are basically mad because. You know, kids, number one, shouldn't see advertising in a classroom, which I think that's a real valid point. And it's actually one of the reasons I think Roblox is not something really great to use at school. Uh, Minecraft or, or the older Minecraft Education Edition, you know, devoid of, of advertising. It, it reminds me of Ready Player One, if you've watched that, right? Because if what was the name of the group that was trying to uh, take over? Um, uh, I'm not going to think of them, but anyway, they're the, the bad guys basically. And if they had taken over, they were going to turn the entire environment into, you know, one big basic, you know, basic ad where you're going to see, you know, advertisements everywhere. Um, so anyway, I hadn't heard of that before. I thought that was a, an interesting thing to kind of draw screen time in there and, um, you know, talk, talk about how we need to, um, you know, be reducing screen time and, and instead of increasing it. But, um, there was a, I don't think I put this one under social media. Maybe I did. Um, a really good article uh, talking about um, fear. Yeah. Washington Post, March 5th, 2019. How outrage over relatively uncommon threats can hijack parents' common sense. This is talking about this, you know, what is now considered an urban myth of the Momo challenge where kids were going to harm themselves and commit suicide. And, and the research has shown no 
children have been harmed by this, but there was so much fear, you know, parents are losing their mind. And so anyway, there's, there is a lot of angst continuing about screen time. Uh, we're probably going to do, well, we are going to do some more parent university sessions um, at school. We actually may do one on sexting after spring break, which I think is a very important topic that we need to talk about. Um, but there's also just so much hand wringing over screen time. And I don't know that I've said this on the show, but, but, uh, there's an article that I don't have in here called how I fell out of love with the internet. And one of the things that made me think is, you know, screen time abstinence, complete screen time abstinence is not a viable strategy today for, for schools. And so anyway, had you heard of that game prodigy, uh, Jason, or any, any, uh, commentary on, uh, that, the, those screen time. Yeah, I, I hadn't articles. seen, I hadn't heard of the game, and then when I I clicked on this article earlier, uh, the thing I thought was most entertaining about it is I do think the freemium model they're talking about is really problematic, and there's been plenty of of news stories about kids that that were playing freemium games that didn't force you to solve equations to 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 strike. So. Um, those have been terrible, right? Like so bad that that at one point, uh, uh, Google Play Store a couple years ago had to refund a lot of money to parents because there had been loose controls on on the freemium purchases. I I think this does go back to the fact that one thing EdTech is going to have to do, and I'm not sure if we're going to come to terms with this uh, 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 correctly or not, but uh, you're either paying for the tool. Right. Um, and there's 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 critical exceptions to this, but either you're paying for the tool or there's some other business model that is probably not something that you're going to be comfortable with from a broad ethical standpoint. Right. And one of the reasons why so many districts are now, you know, uh, telling teachers, actively telling teachers, don't have your kids go out and uh, you know, create accounts. Right. Like on, unless it's a website that we are supporting and that maybe you can log in with the Google apps or Microsoft Office 360 login, yada, yada, yada. Then, you know, that there you the trade of data is something that we're not comfortable making a decision on behalf of kids to force them to do assignments. And that is a great session idea for a conference. Right. I don't know if you've, you've seen anything like that, but looking at the freemium model, looking at the uh, ways in which as a school or you know, educational organization or just as a parent, you know, you're going to decide what you're going to. Uh, have your students and subject your students to, right? Google's very intentional and, and just, <laughs> this is a big deal for G Suite, right? G Suite is not about let's advertise and market to the kids. Let's not, they don't harvest student information. Right. Of course they want to get us all to love Google products and, and use them as adults. And I do. That's right. We all, yeah, yeah, make the Google heart. We all, we're loving Google here. But anyway, I, I think, I think that's a great idea for a conference session. So there, you know, shout out to, Anybody who's listening, um, and if you've seen somebody or has have thoughts about that, somebody who's done a session about that, I think um, that those are really important conversations because freemium is big, right? I mean, right. that's that's Facebook is freemium. Um, of course, you can't even you know pay for it. It's it's different because it's surveillance capitalism, and we're all being monetized if we're participating on the platform. But you know, uh, think Roblox. Um, you know, think many different things right. um, that are, are using that model. And yeah, to what degree, I just, I don't know about you, but I am so insulated now from advertising thanks to my, my favorite uBlock Origin Chrome extension and the fact that we cut the cable and, and primarily just watch, you know, Netflix. It's just, it's really on YouTube on the Apple TV that I sometimes see ads, but they're so short and uh, I don't know, maybe they're also appropriately targeted. I don't find them offensive, right. but when I'm, you know, 
around people that have regular television on, I just about, you know, I don't know what my response is, but it's not a positive one to be like, oh, my gosh, I'm being subjected to this. Well, and one other quick note here, I, I highly doubt that that any of our audience is not tech savvy parents. Right. But if you happen to be a non tech savvy parent out there, I, you know, use use your resources available, uh, public library, tech people at your school, uh, tech savvy teachers that maybe your kids are, are engaged with it, and have some of these conversations about better ways you can seize control as a parent. Right. Like I, I the Internet is a big, bad place and uh, there are clearly dark alleys, but you're not toolless to deal with this, right? There are plenty of, of, of pieces of software that can help you control your, your, your students' access to the internet, turn it off at night, and create all sorts of things that give you more control over things, or even how to have conversations. I'm glad to hear, Wes, you're working, you do parent uni- universities on um, you know, some of these topics, but you know, ask around and find out more. And if you are in a school that, that, that's trying to have these conversations, please invite parents to come and uh, be part of, of these discussions. Because I think part of the problem is, and part of the reason why things like in this, I, I still can't begin to wrap my brain around this Momo thing. Um, when it first came out, I looked it up. I tried to read, I think I read a Snopes article on it. I tried to inform myself and I still can't wrap my brain around because I think it's ridiculous and silly. But the thing that I think is also very true is that in a world where we see how much power technology has, if you're not that savvy to the limits of technology, you may be prone to believe something that is kind of ridiculous like this, because, you know, of of course, that there's risk to using technologies in this way. So, um, you know, I... I, you know, we, we have to, we have to work together. I mean, that's, that's the only way this is going to really, um, you know, work out to the best for all. Hey, you want to uh, hit a couple of those Apple articles that you dropped yeah. in? Um, a couple interesting things from our good friends, um, in, in the Apple world. First and foremost, uh, Tim Cook, um, apparently met with Donald Trump. And, uh, one of the things that, that he talked about is his commitment to K-12 education and, um, kind of Apple as an education company. And it's, it's not just the fact that they want to sell devices, but, um, you know, they're working on providing, um, uh, you know, more resources to schools, including coding resources, uh, in an attempt to, you know, kind of be of service to schools. And so, um, Great to hear that's the case. Um, I think Apple is pretty mightily struggling right now, in in my opinion, in that, that a lot of things about their their model are being challenged. Um, the other article that I would know, this appeared in a lot of sources today, but I just pulled the AP article. One of the things that, that Apple, I think, is going to have to come to terms with is that their revenue-generating horse over the last decade, which is the iPhone, um, the very expensive new iPhones are not selling nearly as high as they had hoped. Um, I think part of that is that, uh, frankly, I think Apple builds, you know, generally hardier devices. And so a lot of, of very advanced Apple users I know are, are holding on to six, six S's, seven, uh, seven S's, eights as opposed to, uh, updating to new, new, uh, uh, uh iPhone tens or iPhone X's or whatever they're calling uh, those devices. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, uh, iPhones just aren't selling uh, as, as, as hot cakey as they have in the past. And in fact, uh, Apple will tell you it's because of, of a slowdown in China as well. But Apple is also starting to lose uh, other revenue as uh, companies are looking to renegotiate or pull the ability 
to um, uh, buy and sell things on their app, which has traditionally caused a, a pass-through fee uh, from Apple. So, for example, Netflix, if you subscribe to Netflix on your phone, right, like you don't subscribe elsewhere and then sign in on your phone, Apple gets a kickback on that, and reports are it can be as much as 30%. Um, of that's that what it, that's what it is for developers. Developers pay thirty percent. Yeah. Sure. So like that, um, uh, as this AP article notes, big companies like Netflix are starting to f- trying to figure out ways to discourage people from buying um, uh, uh, things on the device and are working uh, working to maybe even stop that as a feature. Right. You can just sign in with it. Not unlike the Amazon Kindle uh, app on on iOS. The Kindle app does not allow you to purchase. You can only read. You have to go to Amazon.com to buy stuff and uh that's an interesting phenomenon to me so um i you know i think apple i mean they have you know gazillions of dollars stockpiled so it's not like that they're gonna you know put a for sale sign up on the new apple campus um which hey i'm actually going to silicon valley i should go see if i can see the outside of the new apple campus absolutely um but uh, i know i know um the but uh yeah I, i think that spells more trouble for the uh, the long term vision of Apple, and I'm just hoping they can keep uh, they can keep uh, an eye on this as things move forward. On the security front, uh, I want to highlight an awesome article from CSO Online, February 27th. What is a botnet, and why aren't they going away anytime soon? Uh, you know, I learned about botnets listening to the Security Now podcast. You know, probably five, six, seven years ago. And this idea of, you know, an army of, of drone or whatever, what zombie, yeah, zombie, <laughs> a zombie botnet, um, because you've got, you know, these, the computers that have, you know, little malware programs running on them and then people can control them. And when they say, you know, Hey, send a message, you know, they're able to send a ping to an IP address and they can bring down servers and, and actually they could also bring down the entire internet. And so this article is, is really, uh, fairly scary. Uh, we talked on the show months ago about the Mirai botnet, uh, which was a botnet that took advantage of the Internet of Things devices like, you know, surveillance cameras or, you know, smart thermostats or these other kinds of things. The, the And this is kind of a perfect storm because what's happening, we are buying a lot of devices that are connecting to Wi-Fi in our homes and we're tending to buy cheap things. Well, there really hasn't been much consequence for companies that, you know, sell devices, for instance, that can't be updated or, or, or have known vulnerabilities in them. And so anyway, we've just got lots and lots of very insecure devices that in some cases can't be updated or won't be updated by consumers that can be, you know, hijacked. And so they're saying that actually the Mirai botnet, um, which is an interesting story. So like, here's a, here's a great little thing to have one of your students investigate and, you know, talk to the class. Cause there were these kids, I think in Alaska that were running Minecraft servers and they wanted to basically take down some of their competition. So they created this, this malware, you know, botnet software, um, that basically became so powerful. You know, they got scared. They put it out there on the, on the, you know, black, whatever, the dark web, uh, to, to try and sort of hide from it or whatever. And anyway, it just, it was the most powerful, um, denial of service attack that we'd ever seen. And, and they, the, the hackers eventually ended up targeting Dyn, which is one of the, the backbones of DNS that, that helped the whole web move or the, you know, operate. And so anyway, this article is saying that we've got botnets right now that are, that are more powerful than Mirai. Mirai is still out there. And, uh, I mean, we, <laughs> I'm going to sound like, 
Y2K-ish a little bit here, but you know, we, we should really be thinking about, um, you know, how, how would we operate without, um, all of the capabilities of the internet? And I'm not saying that it's going to be taken down forever and that it even could be taken down, but the fact that Mirai almost did, and there are tools now that are in the hands of hackers, apparently, according to this article, if we believe Marla Korlov, um, you know, that, that are even more powerful. I think that's, it's really sobering. And so, um, you know, back to education, back to our lives, you know, we are probably some of the, the best, uh, catalysts for conversations about security that members of our family have in, in their orbit that, you know, maybe teachers and, and coworkers that we have that we, they work with and around, you know, who is going to have that conversation about security, about passwords, about turning on two-step verification, about using a password manager, about updating the software on your computer, about not freaking running Windows XP anymore, or, you know, these ancient operating systems. Um, these are important conversations that we need to have. We can't rely on a technology department on, you know, the better business bureau on consumer reports, whatever, like we need to be having conversations about security. And so this is your, your little, Hey, you know, read this and be very scared article of the week for security. And I am Wes. Okay. Uh, (laughs) The other piece is, is that, and I want to relate this to, to, uh, to another article in a moment, but uh, you know, I, I still don't think we're taken seriously. That's your security that seriously broadly in the industry. And the fact that we're adding Wi-Fi and network connected devices at an unprecedented rate, but it's low and cheap devices, right? Things like smart plugs that, that have firmware that's not uh, updated very often, yada, yada, yada. Um, uh, I think is, is, is a certain some, something of concern that we need to be thinking more about. To be honest, though, I just don't know how this conversation happens, right? Like, does the government step in? Like, we need that level of action. It's going to have to be liability. We're going to have to have companies, and I think that might be some of the stuff some of those CNN CNN articles talk about, because we're talking about harms that are happening and real costs that are being borne. And so the individuals uh, and companies that are responsible for putting these things out there, particularly when they're not updatable, right? When you can't even update the firmware in a router or some other kind of IoT device, and and there's a vulnerability in it, I mean, that that should just be, uh, you you know, you can't do that. So companies are going to have to be punished. Unfortunately, we're going to have to turn to the lawyers. <laughs> They're going to have to help us here. Um, and then we probably are going to have to have some legislation um, that is going to help that in terms of accountability. I don't think the economic term is the same. It's not like an externality, but it, an externality is something economically that the producer, you know, doesn't pay for, but society does like think fossil fuels and, and you know, CO2. Um, you know, the, the costs of hacks are not being borne today by the manufacturers of these IOT devices, you know, whether it's a surveillance camera or whatever. Um, but we are as a society paying that cost. And so, I think that's going to have to be part of the solution will involve those folks being held to account if they're putting these, you know, flagrantly insecure devices and devices that can't be updated out on the market. Right. Uh, there's a Mashable article I'd like to talk about, about an emerging technology. Uh, Mashable reports um, on, it was March 1st, I think, and now I can't remember, so I'm going to fill this with additional time. And of course, I can't find the date now. Mashable noted recently uh, an interesting commentary about 5G Internet. We've mentioned 5G numerous times on this podcast, in part because I think both Wes and I understand that the ubiquitous 
act, are you ubiquitous availability of extremely fast internet with low latency? So that's fast internet that, 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 uh, the speed that the signal gets to you goes down dramatically, which is one of the great prospects of 5G internet, um, will change the way the internet works. And actually I was doing some research because I mentioned 5G during a presentation last week. And one of the things I had not realized was that 5G also, the 5G technology spec, also allows a lot more connections per tower, which is another way that 5G could be a really, really interesting um, technology to work with. But the reason why I mention it here is this really great article talks about something that is a very real issue, which is a 5G won't matter if we continue to have data plans that are capped or dramatically decrease in speed after X number of gigabytes. And one of the reasons why this article was written is because T-Mobile has announced that it plans to keep its current phone plans as is for at least the next three to four years, even once they move towards a 5G network. And um, that's an awesome announcement. It's very T-Mobile-y. Full disclosure, both Wes and I are very happy T-Mobile customers, but as it turns out, it's not that great because uh, uh, T-Mobile, honestly, uh, even though I can't imagine doing this even under a 5G plan, they cap out at about 50 gigs. They scale back your speed. Um, if you, and, and the way the, the gentleman notes this in the commentary, if you have a 10 gigabyte plan per month, which is not that uh, small of a plan, it's a, what I would call a medium or large size data plan if you have a data cap, uh, if you can download a large HD file in three seconds, that means that you can, uh, that's a, it's a gigabyte in size, it means that you will be able to get through your whole data cap in 30 seconds. And that's just not that, you know, uh, not that logical, right? Like if only a small part of your internet every month, super fast, and then even if it scales back to 4G speeds, well, we already have effectively four, unlimited 4G speed available to us. So um, 5G has been a real marketing problem, right? AT&T running around calling something 5G and it's not really 5G, and then the different uh, uh, mobile providers are mocking each other because of, of, of the names people are taking on. But it's going to be really interesting to watch. It's, in my mind, a little different than the 4G and 4G LTE rollout in that I do think the consumers are much more aware of this, right, and aware of this transition. And I guess the prospects of this technology are, are, are so massive and, and, and clear. So, uh, Wes, are, are you searching for 5G signals yet? Are you walking up and down the streets of your town, you know, looking for a 5G indicator to come on your iPhone? So what we're thinking about is at school when, you know, every kid with a 5G device, you know, has more bandwidth than the entire campus. You know, what, what is, what does that look like? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we're, we're behind that, right? Huawei and, and there are some manufacturers. I think Samsung have got some 5G devices, but you know, the build out's going to take a while. Um, so, but I, I mean, this is something for us to get our heads around though, right? This is the world we're moving into, you know, to the point about the iPhones and declining sales. I mean, we've reached a point where most consumers don't need anything faster in terms of a processor for what we're doing today, you know, than what, what you were able to buy a few years ago. You just, you don't have to have a new phone. And the ways that the speeds are going, I mean, this is Moore's law, right? When is it just so fast that, you know, you don't need it? And, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're getting there.
or quickly. So we are uh, at the top of the hour. I'll real quickly just mention a couple of Huawei articles or articles about Huawei. Um, Huawei, as you may know, is uh, the largest um, wireless um, uh, cellular manufacturer of uh, not only handsets, but I think also just um, equipment today. And, and there's really been interesting things happening with not just the United States, but Australia and some other companies or countries, you know, banning it and, and saying it's a national security threat. Um, the New York Times on uh, or, uh, March the 6th talked to this, this article says what, what you need to know about the Huawei court case in Canada. Um, Reuters on March 3rd talked about the Huawei CFO suing Canada over the December arrest. Really, the New York Times article is the best summary. And um, what's happened is the United States um, has uh, asked Canada, our, our friends to the north, to hold uh, and extradite the CFO, the chief financial officer of Huawei, um, who also happens to be the eldest daughter of the founder. And uh, among other things, you know, we argue, the United States argues that, um, you know, Huawei is engaged in, in lots of nefarious activities to include uh, trying to get around uh, regulations and, and barriers um, against doing business in Iran. Um, they've been, you know, stealing intellectual property from the United States. Um, so today uh, there was an extradition hearing that was going to be held in Vancouver. And one of the biggest contra- contrasts to all this is, you know, here she is out on 10 million Canadian dollar bond. Uh, she and her husband own a couple homes there. She, she wears a, a, you know, not a restraining, but a, a monitoring, you know, band uh, ankle bracelet. And so anyway, you know, a multimillionaire, pretty free. Well, in response to this, for Canada, China has arrested um, several different diplomats and another person um, holding them, you know, in um, uh, camps that are, um, are are like off the map, basically, um, not providing them with access to lawyers. I mean, just a radically different, uh, you know, justice environment. And so anyway, this is, uh, you know, threatening international relations and it's, and it's all tied back to 5G, right? This is what the countries are worried about. If we deploy all this Huawei, you know, 5G technology, is that going to let, you know, China flip a switch and say, Hey, we'd like to just go ahead and listen to all that traffic. You know, the ironic thing is the United States has been doing that as Edward Snowden showed us for a number of years. And so, yes, we live in the age of the surveillance state. But that is probably an example of an article that most kids in school today have absolutely no idea that that's going on. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think mainstream, you know, students and, and civics and social studies is talking about that kind of stuff. And that is laden with with all kinds of implications for the future, especially when it comes to technology and the hostile environment that we live in. And, you know, the fact that we're not all just, you know, happy nation states uh, living together and cooperating together. We've got, you know, trade wars that are going on and military military budgets expanding and all kinds of things that are going on. So, Anyway, if you want to tackle that with your kids and you do, let me know because I'd love to know about discussions that you might have with that. Because I'm, I'm thinking that's probably something that most folks are just not, if, even if you hear the headline, you might not be tracking with all the implications of it. Well, Wes, uh, should we geek of the weekend? Let's do. Um, I'll go fast. Uh, Linda Yolis, one of the most fantastic elementary teachers you'll ever meet. Linda Yolis on Twitter has a great new video and relatively new called Tips to Ensure Quality Blogging. I've used an earlier video that she did with her um, elementary students years ago uh, just about how to leave a qual- uh, quality comment uh, for blogging. 
And then I've got a link to a bootcamp three hour workshop I'll be doing in mid April at the Atlas conference called filtering the exaflood strategies for media and information literacy. And I would be happy to have any ideas that folks may have. I'm looking forward to putting that together. That will be a new session and definitely touch on a lot of the media literacy topics and articles that we end up discussing on a weekly basis here. What a great title. Um, I have something that's just silly and ridiculous to share today, but it did uh, at least uh, raise an eyebrow for me uh, at Mobile World Congress a couple weeks back, Energizer, which has been a a brand name. And I I don't know if they're making these phones themselves or they're just renting their brand name out right now. For example, Nokia has been renting out its brand name to a lot of global uh, uh, global powerhouses to create technology. It's not Nokia making that because they're using the brand name. But Energizer has announced uh, the most ridiculous phone ever. It is the Energizer Power Max P18K Pop, uh, which it doesn't really roll off the tongue. But uh, this phone... Um, I, I don't know how to d- describe it without stealing from some of the, the media around this. It's basically a massive power bank, an 18,000 milliamp hour battery with an Android phone built on top of it. And uh, by the, the Energizer's uh, uh, estimates, you can it has 50 days, five zero, 50 days of standby time. And uh, you can watch 48 straight hours of high definition video on the phone before the. How how many? How many hours? 48. So you can go two straight days of watching video on the phone before the battery goes away. And um, I'm actually a big battery guy. Uh, One of the things that that I've been doing the last two weeks because I've been traveling is um, I have a, a, you know, just a regular uh, LG V20 phone. It's a three-year-old LG phone that I happen to love a lot because it's got an interchangeable battery. And I actually carry a big, thick battery case around it. This is my battery travel battery case. It's 10,000 milliamp hours. And it means that even like when I was using it hard last week in NCCE for content uh, communication connection, I was able to, it, the phone only got down to 22%, even though I hit it hard without charging it. And how, how many milliamps does it have? That's a 10,000 milliamp hour battery. So, okay. um, and so I was only able to get down to 22% with using it aggressively and not charging it. I would imagine then that I could get two full days of using it hard with the Energizer uh, phone. So I, I can't imagine it's right now. I hear it's going to be, I think it's estimated to be about 900 euros. Um, so we'd be talking about, uh, you know, roughly a thousand dollars American. I honestly don't know if I would pay a thousand dollars American for any phone, right? Like that's not a energizer phone thing. That's an, that's an any phone thing for me, but I will admit as someone who I, I hear Android's not great with battery, that that's the rumor on the street, uh, that it's, it's not quite as, as, as great as iPhones are. And I haven't had an iPhone in some time to know that, but I'm hard on battery. Uh, I read every guide on the internet about how to scale back your battery use on your phone. And I still can't get through a whole day of moderate use without nuking the whole thing. But I will say uh, that uh, uh, I am tempted by some of the larger battery phones put out by phone company Energizer. So awesome. Okay, Wes, where can people find you on the internet? 
On Twitter, W Fryer, blog, speedofcreativity.org. How about you? I am at Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter. I blog at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blognc.org. And um, I am going to be at the NROC member meeting next week, the NROC Project, uh, uh, NROC Project member meeting next week. And in April, I'll be attending the DLAC conference, uh, the digital learning conference, uh, first year offer in Austin, Texas, uh, calling together distance learning folks from around the world to talk. So uh, that's face-to-face stuff. This thing here, though, this is the EdTech Situation Room podcast. We are a once-a-week podcast uh, that's brought to you on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, 3 a.m. UTC. And you can always go to our Twitter account, EdTechSR, Find out we're broadcasting live and come and hang out with us live. Uh, we love uh, to to read questions from our chat room. Uh, Peggy George, our chat room moderator, uh, usually joining us to help uh, provide us uh, insight and feedback and ask questions from the peanut gallery. And we'd love for you to participate, too. And we've got a vital question, Jason. Snow update, Missoula, Montana. Uh, it's bad here. Uh, it's been uh, like a lot of snow here. Uh, it's been dropping uh, by uh, there's about th- two feet stacked up in my front yard. Um, and I, I visited a the local Barnes and Noble on Sunday after returning home from NCCE. A full fourth of their parking lot is covered by a 10 foot drift of snow, a 10 foot high drift of snow. So there's a lot of snow here. So, of course, we're talking now at some point that's going to melt. In fact, today it was 35 degrees and it was starting to get a little wet out there. But um, so we're talking floods now. So at some point, the stuff's going to have to melt. And um, across Montana, we, we had we had one school district south of Missoula and Corvallis that was out for nearly a week because the roads just weren't passable. Kids couldn't get to school. So Well, it was like uh, six degrees, um, you know, a couple days ago here. Uh, Lake at school froze. We, we warmed up, and I think it's going to be in the 70s on Saturday, and then we're going to be back with a chance of snow the next week. So, hey, you know, no no climate, you know, phenomena happening here at all. Just regular regular weather, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, um, by the way, you can download this podcast wherever finally or wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, including the new version of Pocket Casts on Android. Beautiful app, by the way, if you haven't seen it yet or you've not used it on Android. It's a $3.99 worth every dime. And you can also go to our website at techsr.com and download tiny audio versions of the file or you can go see us on YouTube. So we hope to see you on a future edition of the EdTech Situation Room. And until then, stay safe, stay savvy.